0: welcome to growth island your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself now let's join your host mess freeze as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition meditation exercise relationships business general health and life's bigger mysteries
1: thanks for tuning into growth island again i'm getting a ton of questions about entrepreneurship which makes a lot of sense for my background and because entrepreneurship is pretty fun and cool and an amazing journey so today i got an expert on that subject he's a civil entrepreneur he's an investor he has been leading several accelerator programs like the top accelerator 500 startups he worked with more than a thousand startups that's a lot so he has the advantages of really seeing like across many startups what's working and what's not working and he's invested in more than 100 startups as well he's also an author and the main reason that I actually want to get him on is because he's always fun to talk to. He has some really good reflections and he's looking at life in a way that I really appreciate of, of how can you have a good life and also build something meaningful. So I got Sean Percival in today. Sean, thank you so much for joining.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: So Sean, you've done a ton of stuff and you're not that old. So, uh, how, Thank you for how, saying that. <laughs> how, how did you manage to, uh, now I didn't mention all of the stuff in your LinkedIn, I'll put a post afterwards so people can see it, but you have an extremely impressive resume of getting shit done and a lot of big experiences. Like, like how did you get to where you are today?
2: Yeah, it's maybe a tough question to answer. I, I guess the best way is I've kind of tried to pivot or reinvent myself many times every few years going in different directions going forward in one way maybe that's in the areas of marketing and startups reversing and going into the investor world you know becoming an author building different businesses you know of my own passion projects and all kinds of things so i'm just like insanely curious and and i'm always tinkering so it's it's given me a really great breadth of uh experience and and lots of ups and downs mostly failures i mean i I know it's a very Silicon Valley and American thing to say, but it's like, yeah, I've learned from failing and, and I've been lucky to fail up, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So a lot of people ask me, like, should I start a company? And I'm guessing you must have gotten that a million times. Like yesterday, I had two messages in my inbox being like, hey, can we talk about the startup idea? I think it's the best idea ever. And like, potentially I should leave my secure job. What's, what's one of the questions like, or what's one of the answers you give when uh, when people ask you that?
2: Yeah, well, it's certainly not for everyone. And I think the best way to think about it is you should start a company if you're insanely passionate, or you know something that someone doesn't know. You should, however, never start a company just to be an entrepreneur. Just because you read an article, entrepreneurship is sort of Rockstar status in the press. Everyone wants to be the next Zuckerberg. So you should never create a company just to be part of that world because you think you want that you belong there. You know, the best companies are always more introspective, where someone is just like obsessed about doing something or improving something. If the answer to that is yes, then of course you should but you shouldn't do it just because you don't like your boring job at McKinsey <laughs> and you think, you know, entrepreneur life is so exciting and sexy because it's actually not. It's it's really hard and it kind of sucks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally agree. So what many people don't see, like we have the TV program in Denmark that's super popular, we have like the Dragon's Den. Um, yep. And they kind of see like go pitching and get that money. But like, I was really surprised going for my consulting job and figuring out how many like low level practical tasks that i had to do like unless you have a bunch of money saved up so you can hire people straight away there's a lot of unsexy tasks that you have to do it's it's also extremely rewarding wow. to be like in a team and you're on that mission um, but i also st- when i started the company it was because i found a problem and that i hadn't seen a solution to so it's like we, we i need to solve this problem and then getting a team where you're like you you feel like you're on a mission right so i think that's mm. that's the same thing i see at least when i see entrepreneurship
2: yeah, I think it's a good way to look at it. I think if you're thinking from the problem standpoint, it's it's the right line of thinking, kind of what I talked about, where it's just like, you are just mission-driven to fix this problem or solve it or do it better as well. But in the early days, yeah, it's so hard. You're lucky if you have a co-founder, and that's also hard to obtain. And people always ask me that too. It's like, what do you look for in founders? And I always talk about this kind of like yin and yang. He or she is awesome in one thing and the other person is great on the other things. Together, they complement each other. Because to your point, you have to do so much. It's highly unlikely that you can do everything and that you know everything. So these people augment you. And that's how you build a great team. You say, I'm terrible at doing this. I'm going to Fire, you know, hire the right person that can do that and then I don't have to think about it so becoming a founder building a team it sounds counterintuitive but the idea is like you're building the team to make yourself basically like irrelevant like not mm. needed <laughs> when it's like you built the team and they're doing all the stuff for you and you can sit back a little bit now you've done really well
1: yeah and about building a team what's what's your take on finding co-founders
2: yeah and that's um you know if you first of all if you're trying to find a technical co-founder that's the hardest thing and that's what i see most often is people are smart they have good ideas they have that passion but they're not coders Mm. and that's one thing that you can't just pick up tomorrow and be coding your first website it takes so many years to be good at it so that's really tough you know the best thing you can do is really sort of take those people who maybe are Doing that type of coding or building, and they're doing it somewhere that is not exciting, and you have to find the person that is a little bit entrepreneurial, but that's also the catch twenty two because the technical people don't want to do the business stuff, they don't want to do the fundraising, they don't want to be on stage. It's a generalization, but they kind of want to be in a dark room somewhere and just hack, 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 you know, working away at it too. So you you look for the technical people that are looking for that excitement and journey. And now we're talking, now that pool's getting even smaller and and a little bit more difficult as well. I used to also say back in the day, you just go to events, you know, and you go to an event around your passion and you start talking to people. Mm. And that I think is where really good things happen. These sort of serendipity, as we call it, and people get connected. Of course, in COVID times, it's hard. (laughs) There's no events, you know, and if you went on meetup.com, you would find a gathering of people around any topic you want, and you could then find those people that can be your partner. Um, I'm sorry to say, I don't know what that solution is now. It's really hard for us to have these gatherings. Maybe this is improving. It seems like it but we've really lost a lot of that ability to spontaneously sort of bump into someone and that creates this moment and connection and then you build upon that.
1: I agree. I heard one advice earlier, which was like you've co-founded, you found that person five years ago, which is like kind of yeah. true. But you're like, thank you for shit. Uh, but the, the truth in it, like people that you already know. So if you're considering doing a startup right now, but you haven't found the idea, but you think this might be for you, um the advice was like make a list of all the great people that you could consider working with that you could see as a potential co-founder one day whether it's in a Trello board or something else make sure you just catch up with them like once every six months or ninth month and just like hear how things are going and then yeah. if you are in the situation where you're looking for the co-founder right now i think as you're saying, events
2: showing up Pretty non-existent yeah <laughs> I, I i would agree with that advice I, I guess i've never thought about it but i've done that or yeah. it's happened to me where someone I worked at three jobs ago is like, hey, I'm doing something new, you wanna check it out. And we ended up working together. So I think it's great advice. And I think maybe for those that are trying to make this leap from consulting or corporate life, you know, you've know, you worked with a lot of people, just think about the people that you really miss. Hmm. You know, Maybe a lot of people drove you crazy and you never wanna to talk to them again because <laughs> that's corporate life, let's face it. But I'm sure you can find one or two people where you're like, wow, I used to have lunch with them and, and we did that trip together and and I wonder where they are. And they're literally just a LinkedIn message away.
1: Hmm. Okay. How do you split equity as co-founders? I think that's something that often comes up and there's many different approaches to that.
2: Yeah. And I've, I've actually seen some pretty kind of bad stuff. And I, I, I see often that the technical fo- co-founder doesn't get as much. And I just don't agree with it. Hmm. Um, The last startup I did, I remember in a scenario where they were going to give the founders, it was me and him, and they were going to give us more equity, essentially, as part of a new funding and to keep us excited. And I remember one of my investors was like, okay, I forget the number, but it was like, okay, we got 10% more to allocate to you. Um, I recommend you give yourself eight and you give your co-founder two. (laughs) And I was like, huh? And and he basically explained it and said like, listen, you're the CEO. You're the one that's gonna have to work the hardest. You're the one that's gonna raise the money. You're the face of the company. You know, you deserve more. And I just didn't believe it and I didn't agree with it. And and so I split it 50-50. I don't think the investor thought it was a smart move. But to me, I was like, okay, yeah, this guy's in the shadows and, Mm. and he is not the face. I'm the one doing all that stuff. But I can't build my business without him. You know, it's like I'm not coding. I my business doesn't exist with him. So I I believe in a pure 50-50 split. On the investor side, often though we do think of we don't I think it's maybe a little bit better in Europe. Americans were maybe a bit more greedy. But I'm actually when I look at a cap table, I just want to know what percentage do all the founders have? And is that enough? I don't worry so much about how it's split up. But I want to make sure that, like, yeah, all the founders as a a group have meaningful ownership. Mm. Uh, And typically it's two, sometimes it's three people. I guess I maybe get a little concerned when it's four and five and six co-founders, because I know that one or two of those people is not going to make the whole run. Mm. And those pieces are now getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But um, yeah, I don't know, I guess very Nordic. I'm, I'm all about the 50-50 split and, and founders should retain equity and as much equity for as long as possible.
1: Hmm, kind of. This whole COVID has been really hard for, especially co- I guess for everyone in the world. And being a co-founder is hard in itself. And I think this has made it even harder for a lot of people. Suddenly it's harder to raise money, it's harder to get a team. For me, a big part of the positive experience of being a co-founder is, being there with the team like i feel like back in my sports days when we were like a team and we were just like we're going for a goal right and you you don't have that in the same way so what are some of the ways you can stay sane as a co-founder or as an entrepreneur
2: yeah and i when i look at portfolios and think about companies i i see two very different things though i i see some startups that are thriving right now you know i I was previously working at whereby that's a video meeting company Hmm. Um, take a while, guess how they're doing. They're doing awesome. They're just yeah. crushing it, revenue through the roof. And we have the Zooms, we have many different players, we have OnlyFans, <laughs> we have so many that have just like gone crazy. And then I also talked with some founders who were selling, they had a platform for event tickets. You know, they had a travel mobile app, and and they're just getting crushed as well. So I think that it is good to have this mindset of like you're in survival and you have to make the tough decisions and tough cuts. Mm. You know, doing a startup is a marathon. It's not a sprint, because if you sprint, you are gonna run out of energy and you're gonna sort of fall to the ground. So yeah, I think the best companies have really just had to look and say, make tough cuts, really rethink, get super lean and efficient in everything that you do. And if you can find new opportunities, and hmm. you know some have managed to do that and and make some changes and and find new opportunities, you know become more virtual and and do that as well. So yeah, but like to answer your question, um, yeah, I think it all depends on like yeah what money is in the bank because hmm. that is probably going to need to last. And and you're right, new funding, uh, it, it is getting better. I will say definitely. And last year, everyone was about preservation. But now new investments are picking up, so we're we're seeing this. Um, but investors, their job is to make money. So if you show them a path that like my business is COVID proof or COVID, um, you know, can actually excel during COVID, then I don't think you'll have the same challenges getting money. Um, but I think what we're really losing is yeah the connectivity. Um, doing too much on Zoom, you know, it's mm-hmm. like we're all we all have had Zoom fatigue. So think about sort of quality of life. Call people on the phone and just have conversations. Everything does not need to be a video meeting with the screen share and with all this too, because it's just like we're getting so tired and sick of that. And I have a few people I do business with and they just they call me on the phone or they ask, hey, can we just do a, a audio call? And I'm like, of course, I'm happy to. <laughs> I don't need the pressure of being on camera every single day. So I don't know, look inward and, and think about in the new way you have to work, what is creating stress for you and be like ruthless about eliminating those things, changing your behavior and changing the way you just communicate so that you don't lose the connection. But at the same time, you're not just exhausting yourself trying mm. to, to do the virtual thing.
1: Yeah. As an investor, I know something that many struggle with as well is like the kind of feeling like they owe the older investor so much because they put money into it. Um, so kind of what's your view on that? Like, like, what do you owe as a founder to some investors if they put money down? And what can the investors actually expect in, like, work performance and so on? Because many people are just, like, working nonstop because they think they put money in. I owe them that, right?
2: Yeah, I don't think it's totally the wrong way to do it. Um, whenever I see a new startup in the press, and my companies do this all the time, and, like, they celebrate. They've raised one million euros, let's say, and it's a big celebration. Um, But I'm always wondering, I'm like, do they realize that they just got the most expensive loan you could possibly get? Because the investor's expectation is I'm going to get at least 10x what I gave you back. Every investor, that's the the mindset when they're making an investment. That's why it's hard sometimes to get money because they don't see the 10x return. The reality is they really want the 50x and the 100x and the Facebook 1000x and all these crazy things, too. So getting money, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you got money from a bank, they're charging you a small interest rate. The investor is looking for 10x. So I would think about that as the weight of the money that you raise. The benefits, of course, are that if you lose all the money, you don't have to pay it back you know we're we're not banks we're not coming after you there there's zero repercussions we made a very high risk bet and as part of that we know that those most of those will fail we're thinking about a 90% failure rate you know maybe 80% if if we're doing really 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 good so i think i'll maybe just close it on on the last time i raised money and i raised about 3.5 million dollars so it's a good amount. It's like seed capital. Um, this was also quite a while ago, so that was actually considered a large round. And when things didn't work out, I had about 20 investors or so, and I was so terrified to send that message and say, "Hey, you know, it's done." You know, they, I kept them updated. They knew we were having challenges, but it was it had got to the point where like it is done beyond done, and. I expected them to hate me and I expected nasty things. I expected lawyers and and I expected to be chewed out. The majority of them were so nice. It was so surprising to me. It was the first time I had raised money as well, like significant capital. And several of them wrote to me and was just like, that's really unfortunate to hear. Thank you for trying so hard, you know? And then another one of the investors said, that's a real bummer what are you doing? And do you want a job? Cause I really want to hire someone like, you which totally caught me off guard. That was 500 startups. That's how I became an investor. You know, they invested and it didn't work out and it was no problem. It was actually to them. It was like, wow, it's valuable that even though he didn't return my money, that he learned so much. And I know he can put that into my business and help the companies. So it was Overwhelmingly positive. There was one investor who I raised the most money from, and he never responded. And I followed up, and he never responded. Seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He wow. was a very, very wealthy man. He was like employee number six at Yahoo or something. So I guess seven hundred fifty thousand dollars is not a lot of money to him. That's a terrifying amount of money to me. <laughs> yeah. But he never even responded. The most negative thing that happened is one of the investors unfollowed me on twitter (laughs) and he he was he's a prominent he's a well-known guy and so that hurt because he didn't say much and then he unfollowed me and i was like oh wow he's so annoyed he doesn't even want to see my tweets (laughs) Mm. so that that's like the worst that that's the worst so it's like you don't have repercussions i do think i'll try and close this rant up but i i do think a lot of founders think that if they raise money and fail they'll never get another chance and i just haven't found that to be true Failure is okay if you fail with integrity. Mm. So you did everything you could, you kept everyone updated, you didn't have any weird shenanigans or or stuff going on. If you fail with integrity, you can get another second chance and investors might actually prefer that because you've made all your mistakes. You're you're less likely to make mistakes the next time you do it.
1: Mm. It's funny because I experienced something similar when I had to close down my company. Uh, when I sent to investors and I was also terrified like even though I kept them updated and several times we've we've been running into some challenges and it's like we can continue but like this is the challenges we're facing so we can either stop now and pay back the money and we ended up at one of the points where we still had a lot of money in the bank being like it doesn't like I can continue working on a low salary but our chance of success are so low right now so they got a lot of the money back and I was still feeling like yeah. how, how are they going to take that and the first question was like that was really Obama um are you going to start something new soon that we can invest in yep <laughs> so was like i was like that was it's... the last response that i would have expected but i think Me it's too. going back to like if you do it with integrity yeah and you keep people properly updated it's it's not as bad it's not that bad
2: yeah and and you even went above and beyond you you were nice to return some of the money um but you don't even have to do that um i think you might get into this point of like oh god if i could just give them everything they invested Hmm. that is still bad for investors if we got 1x of our money back every time we would be the worst bankers in the world (laughs) we wouldn't (laughs) even be getting interest and so you know we write it off i can't speak to the nordics but there's even tax benefits to writing off this loss and and so forth but um, yeah, I mean, you kind of did. So I, I had a lot of deals like that, especially at 500 where I mm. got 20 or 30% of my money back. And yeah, that's nice. We put that back in the pool and it, it'll be used for other founders as well. Um, but it's it's even the same as getting nothing back. You know, in, investing VCs, it's kind of like it's a home run or nothing. Mm. Uh, it's not a game of like a single base hit. You know, yeah. we. Need, I know I'm using baseball analogies. I'm sounding very American. But uh, yeah, it, it is a game of home runs.
1: Yeah. What do you think are some of the misconceptions or something that are set often in the startup environment that's actually wrong or actually directly hurting?
2: Um, yeah, good, good question. Hmm, gotta think about that for a minute. Um, I mean, we touched on this a little bit. This, but like celebrating fundraising i don't think that's a celebration moment <laughs> and I, I i don't know why it happens so much I, I think it happens for pr and recruiting i could understand mm. those aspects of it getting your name out there um, as well um i wouldn't say it's talked about but i see it a lot in the nordics this like slow moving this like oh we're not ready to launch we want to want launch slowly we want to make it perfect um that's not maybe not talked about but it's done i certainly have meetings with norwegian and nordic founders where it's like yeah it's you know we just want to move slow and we want to make sure everything's working and and i don't think that's a startup game you have to move fast Hmm. and things will break your ability to iterate and fix them quickly will make it so that you can survive Um, I don't see that as much in America where it's like, we're just crazy and just go full speed ahead, (laughs) maybe too much sometimes. (laughs) So maybe there's a balance there between the two different differences as well. But, uh, yeah, especially in the early days, you have to be moving fast. You have to basically advance the business forward every single week in some Mm. way. That's the only way to compound and, and get the growth that you need.
1: I really see that perfection is the enemy of progress for startups. Yeah.
2: Well, my favorite quote is, uh, I think it's Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn. And he said, if you're not horribly embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've waited too long. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so true. It and is. I've been in the game long enough that I remember the first version of MySpace. I worked at MySpace, but I remember the first version of YouTube, the first version of Twitter, the first version of Airbnb. Man, those things were ugly and hard to use. Yeah. But that, their ability to go quick, I mean, allowed them to succeed.
1: Thank you, What's something you wish you would have known earlier in this entire startup journey?
2: Um, I definitely wish and, and mistakes I made that I had been more willing to ask for help. I would have been less proud. I would have been more willing to be vulnerable and go to... I had a great network. I was building this in Los Angeles. I had an amazing network, really experienced people it wasn't until the end that I was able to go to them and be like, yeah, I'm screwed. (laughs) I really don't know what to do. I I really am uh, clueless. (laughs) And like, I was so worried about perceptions and and people judging me or people talking in the community that like, Oh, did you know, Sean doesn't know how to do a five-year model. It's like, well, yeah, of course he doesn't. He's a marketing guy. (laughs) He's not a CFO. Like why would he know how to build these like complicated financial models and different things too? So I, yeah, sort of like willingness to ask for help, I think is really, really important. Uh, it is an issue I see more here in the Nordics. You're a very proud people. It's a very do-it-yourself kind of culture. Asking for help is is this huge sign of weakness, um, but it's really not. Like whenever I do webinars or you know do these talks, I'm always like, ask me any question, even if you think this is a dumb question. Mm. I've heard them all. There are no dumb questions it sounds cliche. And if you don't know something, I guarantee someone else in this room doesn't know that as well. So you're actually helping people to bring these concerns or weaknesses or misunderstandings uh, to the forefront. So yeah, I think that was that was definitely a big mistake. I, I waited way too long to ask for help.
1: Yeah. And what about the classic of uh, asking for an NDA, non-disclosure, before sharing your idea? It doesn't
2: happen that much anymore. Um, it's an immediate sign to me that this person has no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they spent too much time in corporations. Yeah, it's also cliche, but ideas have no value. It's all about execution. An investor will never steal your idea. We are If we were idea people and builders, we'd be building companies, not investing them in them. So if you're talking to investors, especially people that have been investing for years, they don't take ideas and build and steal from you. They just don't have the ability. That's why they're meeting with you to mm. fund the people that are builders because they're not builders. No. Or at least not anymore.
1: Yeah. And, uh, at least for most people, it's a red flag. When they
2: like- 100%. It's like... If you want me to sign an NDA because I'm looking at a contract you have with someone, that's fine, mm. understand that. Um, if you have some deal pending with Walmart and that Walmart's like a very secretive company, mm. okay, that's fine. But yeah, no good investor will sign an NDA to get your
1: pitch. No. Yeah. Especially not just to hear about your idea yep. before like getting on a call, hearing about. It. So looking into, Sean, how you managed to accomplish so many things, like what I found at least is that everyone went into challenges is how you deal with the challenges and do you manage to get up again? So what has been some challenges that you met in your life and how did you deal with that or something that you can use again when you run into something?
2: Yeah, I um, I don't know when it happened, but I was always like willing to like put myself out there, talk about what I did. I started very early doing this with marketing tactics and SEO in the very, very early days. And I just found, actually, the more that I shared, the more it attracted people to me mm. that I could work with or, or, or we could help each other and so forth. I did the same thing with failure. When my startup failed, I became a VC because I failed not because the business wasn't doing well. We were doing $2 million a year in sales. I failed because I couldn't fundraise well. So I became an investor. I tried to get I use all that empathy I had for the experience. And I, I learned the ropes of like better understanding the investment market. Uh, I came here to Norway and tried to do business and I, I failed pretty spectacularly at first. And I wrote an entire book about that experience. So I just like take it and I put it forward. Um, a lot of that has been through writing and blogs. And I've, I've on my personal blog, I think I'm at 500 blog posts or something crazy. I've written tons of stuff. I've published six or seven books. To me, writing is like super therapeutic. It really, really gets it out there. And I tend to publish most things that I write. Um, But for others, you know, this sort of like getting it, getting through it, just writing it down and not publishing is still very, very helpful. Mm. So that, that has always been huge for me. And I'm not a great writer. I'm like high school and college dropout. I like get by and I'm sure all my books have typos in them, but I don't care. It's that back on that, like, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. I find them, I fix them, but it's like, I'm not shy to put it out there but I realize it's not for everyone, but like writing it down, understanding it, sharing it, asking for help, communicating it, like that is how you kind of like get it off the chest and, and are able to move on from my experience.
1: Makes sense. That kind of leads into the next question. Like you if you have a process for making decisions, but like, is it purely intuition based? Do you make like decision trees? Do you sit down and write down your thoughts about everything or like, what, what do you do when you're like facing a big decision?
2: Yeah, well, I always sleep on it. I know that's the easy thing. <laughs> every major decision, sleep on it for one night. Uh, every time you're mad at someone, like sleep on it for one night. If, every time your coworker drives you crazy and you want to shake them, you know, just like sleep on it too. Uh, but I, I don't write stuff down. I don't use any software. Uh, I try and think one i go deep into research mode reading everything i can youtube is an endless wealth of information there's almost nothing now you can't find on there and i just i consume i consume and then before i really commit though i always try and maybe this is very startup mindset is i just think like how do i test this Hmm. and you know i said i'm not a coder but i have learned enough that i can piece together things i can build forms i can do anything in wordpress i can hack things together you know, I can really duct tape something. I can do it very manually at first, you know, as opposed to trying to build a database and understand that as well. So I, I always try and take a concept and test really, really small, you know, really, really try and learn from that and make those decisions. And at the end of the day, I think what it comes down to, it's a bit of like chaos theory. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of stuff up and I'm seeing what resonates with me and what mm. keeps me excited. If it can't keep my attention, then I just let it go. So I, I definitely subscribe to the idea of like, kill your darlings, you know? It's like, if you're not loving it, if it's not bringing you value, joy, learnings, then put it aside. I might revisit it again, but it's mm. just like, I put it aside and move on as quick as I can.
1: And what about career decisions? Is that the same? you're like, how can I test out this potential collaboration? Or is that a different process? Is it more like, how do I feel about these people? or do you have coaches, like a mentor that you yeah, talk almost to? Almost
2: exactly the same. Okay. I I don't I can't think of the last job that I took that I didn't have a try before you buy. Yeah. Um I I know I was like pooping on consultants a little bit earlier, but I'm a consultant and I do that all the time. Maybe I'm I'm different. I'm not a McKinsey consultant type. Um, but almost every job I've worked at, I consult for them first. Yeah. And it's a very easy pitch. I send them a proposal for three months and i said let's just make sure that we like each other and that this is working out and it's less commitment for you and for me before i dive in and yeah god it's like every job that i can think of i've done that and so yeah i'm big on try before you buy almost every time i go forward and i do take the job Mm. Um, there's maybe been one or two where i didn't in the last few years but yeah, I think that's good. And that it works really well in Norway because it's hard to hire people and it's expensive and it's hard to fire people. So when I say, hey, let's be a consultant, they're like, oh yeah, of course we know the model well. <laughs> so yeah, so what I do, let's talk about Whereby, the one of the last jobs I had a yeah. year ago. And yeah, that's what I did. And they came to me and said, oh, we have a very specific problem with churn. And I said, great, I'm going to work on that problem. And I was very narrowly focused on that. It allowed me to be cross-functional across the whole company. It allowed me to prove the value and show results, you know, before we jumped in and allowed me to make sure like, okay, can I work with these people and, mm. and be successful as well? And same deal. It was three months. I think we extended it one month or so. And then I made it a full-time opportunity from there. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about try before you buy. I think all founders should do that. Commitments are are tough and, a lot of times you learn as you hire more people that like you make a lot of mistakes and i've certainly did that early in my career i hired the wrong person because i had the wrong idea or someone told me that i had to hire that person and they were completely wrong (laughs) it was just not a match at all so i I made that mistake quite often
1: but how do you hire in a startup like you have at least in the start you have hardly any money if you have any money right or when you then start as part of like selling the passion and so on but what's what's your take on the founders to do that best
2: yeah that that is really the attribute that we really want to see like investors are always like wow look what he or she did and they they have nothing they have no resources imagine what a little bit of resources can do it's like your job is basically to recruit and retain talent that's a big part of the job so when you show us that you can do that man we just like we're so so super duper impressed too Um, but yeah like how do you do it like Yeah, that's tough. I, I think you're, especially early on, maybe you don't have the network. You have to look for these people that have potential, but they have not, they have very low sort of ranking jobs. Mm. The biggest mistake you do is go try and hire someone like me, like an experienced CMO where it's like, yep, I have a lot of experience. I like, I need a big salary. If you're going to bring me in, you hire me five or 10 years ago who was just like scrappy and learning things and, and was excited and, and you know was posting on Reddit asking questions about marketing or something like this. Like you hire those people and then you let them rise up in the organization. You don't in the beginning think, oh, I need that really expensive guy or girl that can just do it. Cause those are the worst match in a startup. Like someone like me, it's like, I need budget. I need a team. I need at least three or four people on my marketing team mm. to really do a lot of stuff. And if you can barely afford the one person, you definitely can't build the team. So I think that's your secret. It's like looking at those people that are just about to rise, you know, let them rise in your organization. They, if we're talking marketing, they come in as a marketing manager and they go to marketing director and maybe they become CMO, who knows, Hmm. but you don't bring in the inexperienced or experienced person, put them at CMO. You've put them right at the ceiling already. They don't have anywhere to grow and it might've cost you a lot too. So yeah, that's really the secret is like the ability to identify these people. Um, One of my bosses, Jason Calacanis, he's really well-known in the startup ecosystem back in America. I think that's what he was the best at. For some reason, he just knew when someone was gonna be the next star, when they were gonna be the next great person, and he got him in. And when he hired me, he paid me $30,000 a year. I took a pay cut to work for him. (laughs) That's a low salary in California startup life you know, but he knew that like, yeah, I didn't have much experience. I was potentially on my way up. I took a pay cut and I was happy to for him because yeah. I, I knew he would give me this this ability to move up in my
1: career. Kind of, kind of. What about as an investor when you're looking at startups? Like what's like some of the common mistakes that you see that's kind of like give you a red flag and you're like, I'm not gonna invest in them. And what actually makes you be like, I wanna invest in that team. You trust a little bit about being able to attract a team get far with like no resources.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of investors will be like, team, 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 which I think is like, yeah, it's true. I guess it's the easiest answer to give (laughs) uh, as well. It's like, yes, of course you should have a team and it should be good. (laughs) Um, uh, Someone I used to work with at 500 Startups, he said this recently or, or maybe not recently now, but like he said, if you wanna get an investor, you have to win their heart and mind. And I think that's the secret. So the heart is like, yeah, I like you as a person. I'm excited about what you're doing. I wanna be part of your journey. The mind is the metrics, the understanding of the economics and, and maybe the more boring stuff as well. But it's like, if you get these, like maybe these intangible softer things and then you back it up with like awesome numbers. And I don't mean just like you're a rocket ship. I mean that like, if I ask you about a number you know it right away and you can explain it. You know, I always worried. I I ask a lot about metrics because that's kind of my background and and I don't expect rocket ships. But when I ask a founder like, oh, yeah, what's this? And then they kind of like look away (laughs) and Mm. they're just like trying to make something up or or they don't understand or they send me their metrics and it's just a complete mess. Then it's a bit red flag where I'm like, wow, if you can't manage the few things, numbers you have to manage now, I I worry about you at scale as well. So yeah, the, the, it's such wide ranging. I'm thinking about the fund I'm with now and thinking about an investment we did, an investment that we didn't do and more recently. And the one we didn't do, it was just like, none of the numbers made sense. The materials were so poorly created. When we asked questions, they never had the answer and had to go think about it or come back to us. And I was like, oh, like you're the founder of the business. You, you should know this number. This should mm-hmm. be a number that you look at every single day. Uh, On the other side, a business that was like, not very sexy to be candid, but man, he just was, he was like a machine. He just knew every little nuance of his business. I knew that every morning and every night he was looking at his numbers, better understanding them, adjusting the business and and doing that. So I sort of put aside the fact that I wasn't so excited about the business. Hmm. The fact of like, wow, operational excellence, this guy has operational excellence. If we invest here, our money will be well managed and, and the outcome is, is much, much better.
1: And what about how to get a hold of investors? So as a young entrepreneur, you don't really know a bunch of rich people or investors. Is it like hitting them up politely on LinkedIn, writing like something, yeah, something fun or something yeah. good or is it like showing up now there's not as many events or getting that warm intro or like what, what would you say to someone that doesn't? Have speed dial on 10 investors?
2: Yeah, the the cold email, it's really, really tough. And I think the bigger the investor, the more experienced they are, like the less likely they'll respond. Um, And that's because their network is so good. Their warm intro deal flow, their connections are just sending them all the best stuff. So I get a lot of pitches. I get at least one to five per day and I can't respond to them all. Mm. And the few that I do though, where it's just like, oh, they actually researched me. They actually realized that this is relevant to what I do. And this is based on my experience and I could actually be helpful here. But the majority are people just like, I can tell you're just sending this email out to every investor. I, I'm sure there's a list of investors out there that people buy or scrape and just like dump. <laughs> That'll never work, too. I get so many weird things that are just like, this isn't relative to me. Uh, I only invest in the Nordics and Baltics right now. And and this guy's in Pakistan. It's like, I salute the hustle. But it's like, mm. you, you just didn't look at me at all, too. So maybe let's try and answer the question, though, maybe a little bit more helpful of like, It's gonna take you a long time to get to know these investors. It's easier to get to know other founders and those founders can be the best source of introductions to you. So you get to know other founders. Hey, I love what you did. Can we talk about this? I have a new idea in the industry that you work in. I want your feedback. So we do have this concept of like, if you want money, you ask for advice. So I, I would say go after and get to know other founders either in your region or in your space, build relationships there when the time is right, they will help to make that warm introduction mm. which will then allow you to actually get the meeting and, and potentially get the cash
1: yeah shifting gears a little bit away from startups to like some reflections on life which is one of the reasons i also want to get you on the podcast now we have covid and it's going to be somewhat different world after we uh, we have this madness hopefully ending what do you think will have changed in our way of working and our way of living and that was a big question
2: yeah. And it, it is a big question. And um, yeah, I just I think about it as like, yeah, COVID has broken the world. I do not think we know what is actually the repercussions yet. And I think we've all been propped up, you know, by just our instincts and the government just printing money left and right, every government doing that as well. So I I don't think we truly know. But it's it's broken the world. But I think that like, you can self reflect, And you can take some solace in knowing that like the way people work is not going back. I genuinely believe that. And I was starting to have those views before that, um, whereby where I worked, we talked about flexible work. You don't have to go sit in the office for eight hours. And we never expected that and we didn't want that. Mm. You wanna take the meeting from your kitchen room table, you wanna take the meeting from frickin' Spain, doesn't matter. The work just has to get done and, and it can be done anywhere. And we were telling this story and we were talking, we we're trying to get flexible work as a thing, different than remote work, more about flexible work. And, you know, obviously then COVID happened and, and all that has now really, really cemented as well too. So yeah, that that's what I've been looking at. That one, I think it's actually concerning or risky to have every, all your eggs in one basket because of the potential ups and downs. You know, I think it's even more risky to be working for any corporation right now Cause again, we don't know the long economic benefits and we saw how they just like immediately dumped hundred thousand people. And then that's what they had to do. So to me, I think the best thing you can do is be resilient, work on these side hustles, have multiple sources of income. Even if those sources are, some of them are just a hundred or $200 a month, You know that could eventually grow. And I gotta tell you, I do that mostly cause I enjoy it. I have all these little side things I do cause it makes me feel a bit like an entrepreneur and sometimes i need the money sometimes i really don't but i just enjoy doing that so i feel that gives me this resilience i'm lucky to be an investor and have these positions but that could crash tomorrow who knows like that could go away too so building up these multiple things and that's so easy to do online you can teach you can i write books publish them on amazon i don't have a publisher you can do affiliate marketing you can do what you're doing you can do all of these different things now if you're really hot, you can go on OnlyFans. Like, there's just so many channels, you know, that you can do different things. So I, I would build this mode of yourself. Um, now, that's probably not for the founders because the founder job is so much. But for everyone else, like, that's what I'd be thinking about. Is like, how do I make a dollar a month, and then how do I next month make ten dollars a month, and, hmm. and keep building upon that as well too. But yeah, my reflection as well. I guess to try and put a bow on it too. It's like. I am a city boy and I always have been I'm born in Los Angeles I lived in San Francisco I was in Oslo here Uh, I'm now in a small village and it's actually very nice and I I don't see the allure of the city anymore Uh, so I think that that's also like that just saves me so much money and it saves me so much time and there's so few distractions so I get so much more time with myself Hmm we need social interactions, but I'm actually more in the vein of like, I'm enjoying the isolation. (laughs) I I will definitely enjoy less isolation when that's more feasible and available too. But it's like, isolation is not bad. Sitting there with your thoughts, writing, taking notes, just having all this time is really good. So that's something I hope we don't lose is, you know, getting rid of these distractions, having isolation as a way to better yourself. Uh, I I think that that is a thing. I don't know exactly what that Hmm. thing is, but that, that is, that is going to support people and help to create uh, an interesting wave of, of new people and new ideas.
1: Have you ever tried the uh, Vipassana retreats or like the 10-day silent meditation uh, vipassana Vipassana, Yeah.
2: No, I, I was looking into it and it's interesting. Yeah. Are these the silent ones yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. Definitely know a lot of people that have done it and, and it's interesting. I would do it in a second. Um, I have done these things before as I look back. Um, like, the last 2020, I uninstalled every social media app from my phone. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. It has reduced my distractions. I've saved so much time. Um, Prior to this, I did another thing where I didn't use my cell phone for 30 days. I put it in a drawer for 30 days. So by the way, I had to like print out maps to figure out how to get around. It was not convenient. But it just allowed me so much like reflection. So I, I love these things. I think about like time boxing and like being like, I'm going deep on this subject Mm. or I'm just spending this time with myself a day, a week, a month, whatever it is. Yeah. This is something that I don't know. It's like COVID is is so bad, but it's just like, wow, getting the world to stop for a moment is, is interesting. And, Mm. And I think it will be for the betterment. I do worry about mankind is the way that we work and all these capitalist societies that everyone will immediately go back to the old way and, and worse, (laughs) you know, like, like maybe cruises will, there'll be millions of cruises. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know, like that, that's what I worry about a little bit, but I, I think enough people have adjusted that, that it, we won't be as bad as we were in terms of what we do to the world and ourselves.
1: I, I definitely hope so. I love that, um, that you actually put your cell phone away and that stuff I've only done like a day which is absolutely crazy like how that can be difficult just to put your phone away for like 24 hours and I'm going to do three to four days like total silent meditation in um, one of the coming weeks just mm. to try and see it um, I think it's I think more of us need to like get that space of not constantly being on constantly having the brain being occupied with
0: something
2: Yeah, I mean, if you need some inspiration, like watch the, uh, it's on Netflix, it's called The Social Dilemma. Yeah, Um, I I think why I was like, I actually did this like disconnect from social media apps before COVID, but um, I think it's because I I worked at my space. I've worked Mm. with these startups. Like I see how bad they are. I'm a marketer. I know what data can do. (laughs) And I don't know if the general population, they have an idea like, oh, Facebook's bad. Oh yeah, Google, they must be doing something bad. I bet they're listening to me. Uh, it's actually like 10 times worse. <laughs> so I, I, I would encourage people to like just, yeah, educate yourself and and understand what's happening and, and make the right decisions. But um, you know, what was the interesting thing on this no, no phone for 30 days. Um, this was actually a while ago. So it was maybe a year or two after the iPhone came out. So you can imagine the excitement and rush. Um, I noticed that nobody can stand in line without their phone. You know, I was just like, wow, here you're, it's just five minutes. I would stand in the line and I would be like, I'm the only one not staring down at a bright palm. I'm the only one. Mm. I'm just going to take this five minutes and think about something or remember a good moment I had. And it was it was just really nice. It was just like that showed me. And then I also noticed that like when I went to lunch and had lunch with people, I was like, wow, it's really rude to. I mean, I know we don't have lunch as much anymore, mm. but like it's really rude. Like people just like looking at their phone the entire lunch I just like. And I'm not, because I don't have my phone. <laughs> no. Normally, you, you look at tables, you're like, oh, one person starts and then the next starts and it just, mm-hmm. like, cascades. I was just like, wow. I, yeah. Yeah, it made me a little more aware of of how actually rude this technology is uh, in these interactions.
1: It gives a lot more presence. Do you have any other habits or routines, Sean, that you, like, do every single day or, like, once a year you do something or twice a year?
2: Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't. And I maybe tried to be better a little bit about that because i'm trying to like better understand like this like scandinavian way and like the american and me just like resisted so much because we, we just like ah, gotta work so much as well too um but pandemic wise like mornings are for me and my morning doesn't start until i want it to mm. and that was something different where i always felt that i had to be at my computer or to my job or having meetings at 9 a.m to you know, you hear a lot about these. I know a lot of healthy people are like, oh, yep, got to wake up at 5 a.m. and I go and run. And I, that, that, I, that's not for me. I guess I'm like too American. Like I might wake up and have a cheeseburger instead. <laughs> but like mornings are for me. My, my day starts when I, I want to start. And sometimes that means I'm going to sit in bed and enjoy the time for an hour or two, or I'm going to do something else, or I'm going to start working on a passion project in the morning and not jump right into the grind. And yeah, sometimes that means my days go later. You know, we're talking at 5 p.m. I have one Mm. more meeting after this as well. But that whole beginning of the day, I just was allowed to be me. I structure that. I block it out on my calendar, you know, so I don't have meetings during that time. And yeah, that's been the most helpful. And just like, yeah, having a year of not waking up like frantic. Oh, God, got to get to the meeting. Do I look okay? Is it ready? Did I prepare this? It's just like, nope. Morning time is my time. And, And I just do what I want to
1: do with it. And I start when I want to start. I love that. Time is running. So, just uh, yeah. finishing off two Speaking things. Of um Any last, like, one to three advice to give about how to live a happy, healthy, and meaningful life? Something I ask all the guests. So, for you, I think it's very much the happy life or meaningful life.
2: Yeah, I think for me, like, doing something and doing something so well in the smallest niche and even if two people say they love it that's all i need i don't need like all my books are super niche topics so i think the best to have the sort of meaningful happiness is like create something and if just one person tells you that they found value in it um, i've had a lot of this with my blog posts i know i talk a lot about writing but I, i do think it's one of the best things that people can do Um, You know, and I've had some blog posts that have gone a bit viral too, more viral than I really wanted to. And I've had some that nobody read. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't matter in those cases, at least having that one person come to you and be like, wow, I loved how you put yourself out there. I love how Mm -hmm. you said this. This is really helpful to me. And sometimes that comes back years later, too. So Yeah, I think the best you can do is, doesn't matter what the topic, your subject, whatever you're passionate about, is like, put it out there because you want those thoughts to be out there, not because Mm. you want to be an influencer on the topic and you don't need that. You know, you just put it out there and like, you will get that feedback and that, man, nothing makes me happier.
1: I really like that. Sean, where can people find out more about you? If they're like, this guy was pretty cool. I want to learn about uh, being an American in Scandinavia. Like, what's the point of that or some of your other books?
2: Yeah, don't don't send me a social media message because I just don't no. see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can go to my website. It's just my name, dot There is a contact form there. Uh, yeah, please don't pitch me. But no. you're welcome to reach out and say, this is my idea. Ask me a question. I love writing back to those and responding to those as well, too. Um, I have a blog. You can find all my books on Amazon. I've written about Scandinavian culture. I've written about video games. I've written about virtual worlds. I've written about MySpace. Oh, that's really outdated as well, too. I've written about accelerators. So it's like, yeah, grab one of those and, and tell me what you liked. Tell me if you find any typos because I, I published fast.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Sean, thank you so much for your time and for uh, for sharing your experiences. I really appreciate it
2: really really good talk really really enjoyed it and uh yeah best of luck out everyone and yeah let's have a good year and be optimistic i i do feel that the light is at the end of the tunnel so if you are struggling and life sucks hang in there like we're
1: we're getting there i agree